Great to be together. I'm inviting you to pull out your Bible this morning and open to the Gospel of Luke. You can also pull out your bulletin if you would today. We're going to Luke 15. And while you're pulling out your Bible and while you're grabbing your bulletin, here's what I want to say to you all this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness and just for your prayers for our community over this past weekend. It's been a pretty strange weekend in our community with the news that broke on Friday evening about the first presumptive case of COVID-19. And that news broke. And I want you to know that our, our church leadership has been praying about that, praying for our own community. The, 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 the person who, who has been diagnosed with this um, was an employee at a, at a school in Lake Oswego. And so as a church leadership, we started praying and monitoring this situation. I know many of you have been praying as well. And here's what I, I'd actually like to ask you specifically. Please pray for a couple of things. We have many medical professionals in our church who are preparing themselves for whatever's going to happen. And just pray for them. Pray for God's grace. Pray for God's protection. Please pray for fear in our community. There's a lot of people who are afraid, and, and we understand that. And so we want to pray for fear that might be, might, people might be experiencing. And continue to pray just for our church as we make decisions about how to worship and gather in the midst of all this. You know, one of the things I want to ask you to specifically pray for is that River West Church could continue in sort of this season to be a place of hope. Amen. Hope and peace and faith. We want to be a light on a hill. We want to be a place where people can come and worship Jesus. And folks, the way we do that is every Sunday when we gather, we we do the same thing, don't we? We turn our attention to Jesus Christ. We focus on him. I'm so glad to get to do that this morning. And that's what we're going to do today as we gather in Luke 15. So I'll have you turn in your Bible to Luke 15. And here's the thing I want to say to you. Today, we've come in our series to the most familiar story in the entire gospel of Luke. And, And perhaps in the entire Bible, okay? It's the famous familiar parable of the prodigal son, right? Everyone knows about the prodigal son. Not only is it the most familiar of the parables, but for many, many people, it's, their, it's the one that they love the most. I've had so many people from our church come and say, I can't wait for the sermon on the parable of the prodigal son. It's my favorite parable. And I, and I, I understand why. What we're about to study together is literally a masterpiece Not only is this parable very familiar, but as I learned this week, many literary scholars, even secular scholars, view it as a masterpiece of storytelling, character development. It's it's detailed, it's drawn out, it's beautiful. What Jesus spoke that day was breathtaking. And so not surprisingly, it's it's been an inspiration even in sort of like the sort of the, 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 the public imagination in our culture. No parable in the Gospels shows up more in our poetry, in our art, in our literature, or in our music. And not just Christian poetry or art or literature or music. So the parable of the prodigal son has been the inspiration for 
poetry by the likes of Rudyard Kipling. It's been the inspiration for art from the likes of Rembrandt. It's inspired music from the likes of Iron Maiden, Kid Rock, and Warren G. Okay, so, but here's the, here's the problem that we have right out of the gate. And the problem is this. If familiarity breeds contempt or even boredom, then we've got our work cut out for us, don't we? Don't we? Because so many Christians, they say, I've heard 15 sermons on the parable of the prodigal son, right? And so we've got a lot of work cut out for us. And, and here is what I, here's what I have noticed as I've seen the way this parable is depicted in music and art and literature, and even sadly, in many sermons that I've heard, is that those portrayals of this parable have completely missed Jesus' point. Did you know this? Did you know that when Jesus first told this parable, his goal was not to inspire people? His goal was not to create warm fuzzies in people's hearts. We sort of imagine Jesus telling the parable, and you know the story of the son who wanders off and he lives recklessly and he abandons his father and then he returns home and it's this tender moment, right? And the father leaps off the porch and he, and he does something that no ancient patriarch would do. He lifts his robes and, and he runs out there and he greets his son. And, and we imagine the first audience weeping and thinking, oh, this is so beautiful. But here's the problem with that. They weren't weeping. They were offended by this parable. Did you know this? Jesus did not speak this parable to warm people's hearts. He spoke this parable to rattle them a little bit. It's interesting. He wasn't intending for people to have the experience we have when we watch a Hallmark Channel film. Ah, It was more the effect of a French film, all right, or a dystopian sci-fi where people are like, what? What are you saying? And that was the experience of everyone in the room. Context is key. So will you look back with me now at the context? Go to chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Do you remember the context? Eric preached a masterful sermon last week where he reminded us what was happening in this moment. But look at it in your Bible, and let me read intro to this whole chapter, 15 verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They grumbled. And here's what they said. Ah, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now just hold on for a minute. That is the audience that Jesus is now speaking to. He's responding to that heart posture. A grumbling Pharisee who cannot stand the idea of Jesus treating sinners well. Incredible. And so what happens next? Verse 3. I'll just read the first phrase. So he told them this parable. And then what happens is, as you read chapter 15, and we started last Sunday, we don't just get one parable, we get three. 
Isn't that interesting? Three parables. We get the parable of the lost sheep. It's a shepherd and one of his sheep wanders off and he goes out and he brings back the sheep and it's this time of rejoicing and Pastor Eric preached this incredible sermon about joy in the body of Christ. Amazing. Then we get a second parable. It's the parable of a lost coin. A woman loses something precious in her home and she goes on an all-out search. She pulls out a lamp. She finds it and there's rejoicing. And then we get a third parable. And it's the parable of a lost son. A son who wanders away. And so the reader's thinking, well, why did we need three parables? They all sound similar, and there are some similarities, but here's what Jesus is doing, and let me tell you, folks, this is masterful. The parables are similar, but they also crescendo. They build in intensity. So I noticed this week, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but one of the things that happens from the first parable to the second parable to the third parable is that the percentage of loss increases. Think about this. From one out of a hundred, that's one percent. One sheep out of a hundred. Who cares? Let it go and and die. (laughs) Two, one out of ten. Did you see that in verse eight? One out of ten coins. Now the percentage has gone to ten percent. This is a bigger loss. And then finally, when you come to the parable of the prodigal son, it's one out of two. And the reader's thinking, this is different. This is a huge loss. And not only that, we go from a mangy sheep to a precious coin to a child. I've never lost a sheep in my life. But we've lost our family cat on way too many occasions, okay? We have this cat, his name is Oliver, and I will tell you, I love him dearly, but I also, there are times when I want to wring this cat's neck, okay? He is a Bengal kitty. Do you know what a Bengal cat is? This is like, we've bred like a wild Savannah cat into like a domesticated, this cat can jump eight feet in the air. They're amazing. This morning, I was stumbling around in my kitchen, getting ready to come to church, and I I walked over to the fridge, and I opened the fridge to pull out my breakfast, and I felt a living presence glaring at me. And I looked up and it was Oliver on the top of our refrigerator. He had jumped to the top of the refrigerator and he sneaks out constantly. The door opens, he's gone and we live where there's coyotes. And so we're constantly chasing this cat, losing this cat. I've never lost a coin, but I lost my wedding ring once. It was the first year of marriage, which is not the great year to lose your wedding ring, all right? Here's the story. It actually, I only lost it for a split second, but it felt like an eternity. I was jet skiing, and I, because I'm an expert jet skier, I, at one moment, I, I gassed it, and as I gassed it, the jet ski flew out from under me, and my ring caught, caught on the handle, and it fell into a 30-foot lake. And for a split second, I thought, Kathy's going to kill me. And I will swim to the bottom of this lake 
to get this ring. And I, you're never gonna, you would have to be there to believe that this happened, but I guarantee you it happened. I'm falling off of the jet ski. My ring sinks, starts to sink to the bottom of the lake. I take a deep breath. I swim down. I blind, eyes closed. I swing my hand to the water and I catch my ring six feet underwater. Yeah. Undeniably God, Scott Bradley. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. Then what happened, I got home, I told Kathy the story, and she said, Adam, I've never told you this, but I'm going to be honest with you, that ring cost me $50, okay? <laughs> I was like, well, okay. Anyway. I've lost a cat, I've lost a ring, but let me tell you something, I've never lost one of my daughters. I mean, except at Disneyland, but who hasn't lost a child at Disneyland? <laughs> But actually, what I want to say real quick is this is actually not a laughing matter because in this room, there are people who have lost children. And in this room, there are people who have prodigals. You know what's amazing? When you love Jesus, there's almost nothing that can happen in your life that creates more emotional pain than a prodigal child. Amazing. And what happens in this parable, the parables build, but also they set us up for a pattern because in the first two parables, remember, they find their lost treasure and they invite the community and everyone comes to the party. And then when you get to the third parable, that pattern gets broken and it's disturbing. And it's jarring. And it rattles the hearer. And it's meant to. Let's read the parable now. Verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Now, I'm going to say real quick, from this point on, I'm not going to refer to this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, because there's two sons. And actually, you have in your Bible, look at your own Bible, you have probably a little title there. That title, the parable of the prodigal son, is not in the original Greek. Jesus never called the parable this. This is actually a parable about two sons. And not to give away my whole sermon But what I'm going to argue in just a minute is that they are both completely lost. So I titled my sermon, The Parable of the Father's Two Lost Sons. And he said there was a son who had, there was a a man who had two sons, and the youngest of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And if you If you've been around the church, you know this would have been the most insulting thing you could ever say to your father. He would basically be saying, I literally cannot wait for you to die. And inheritance worked the same in that culture as it does in ours. You'd get your inheritance at the death of your father. This son is saying, honestly, dad, your longevity of life has become a real nuisance. (laughs) Can I just have the inheritance now? Oh, imagine it. 
And the father divided his property between them. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, and then he begins to rehearse his speech. Have you ever done that? <laughs> you got a big moment coming. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. And you rehearse and you plan it out. He's planned out the whole speech. And he gives it to us. I will arise. I'll go to my father. And here's what I'll say to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Beautiful. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. But wait, not everyone. Pattern broken. Act two. Now, The older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come safe and sound. But he was angry. And he refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now listen, you have to get yourself in the room in that moment. Think about the tension, okay? Everyone in that room was at the edge of their seats thinking, what's gonna happen next? Will the family be reunited? Will the older brother go in? Will he embrace his younger brother? Is this a Hallmark movie or is this a French? Like, what what am I hearing? And everyone in the room would have been jarred by the fact 
that Jesus does not finish the story. He leaves the older brother out in the darkness with the words of his father ringing in his ears. Why would he do that? Because his audience is the Pharisees. And he's entreating them, please do not miss God's banquet. You are on the verge of missing it. Amazing. And they were not born yesterday. They would have known. (laughs) Wait a minute. In this story, we're the older brother. (laughs) Okay? They would have been really disrupted by this. Really rattled. The problem is we don't get rattled anymore by this parable. This parable, it doesn't disrupt us. It doesn't disturb us the way it did. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to disturb you. Welcome to church. Okay. (laughs) I want to re-disturb you with the parable of the prodigal son because that's what the parable is supposed to do in a good way, all right? We're going to disturb each other in the name of Jesus, okay? And here's how I'm going to do it. I have three observations about this parable that I think will disturb you if you really stop and think about it. Number one, there is more than one way to turn your back on God. And in this parable, each brother represents a different way to do it. A different way to reject God, a different way to alienate yourself from God, a different way to turn your back. The younger brother does it through outright rebellion, but the older brother does it through obedience. Falsely motivated obedience. And the reader goes, huh? Wait a minute. So in the narrative, we're used to the first brother. We, we, we know those stories of sin and rebellion. It's classic. And we recognize it immediately. Selfishness, greed, partying, debauchery, wastefulness, living uh, in a worldly way. He, was, he, he spent all of his money on wine, women, partying. We recognize some of our most powerful testimonies are testimonies of someone leaving that kind of lifestyle. And they are powerful and they are amazing. But that's not the only way to turn your back on God. And it's very startling. And it's supposed to be. Because then you come to act two and you realize we're being given actually another way to reject God. Now, at first, you, 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 you read of the older brother and you think he's actually being presented as the responsible one, right? This was the brother who was moral. This was the brother who was dutiful. This was the brother who was dependable. This would have been the kind of person who was always self-controlled, always, 
always composed. You would trust him. This was the kind of person that you would hire to do your bookkeeping, okay? (laughs) Or your taxes or manage your money. He would have been highly respected in the community. The whole community would have seen this brother and said, oh, how lucky that man is to have a son like that. And so you're reading it and you think, well, this is just a classic example of Bad son, good son, right? Got the bad son who wanders off. We got the good son who stays at home. We got the bad son who's wasteful. We got the good son who's dutiful. And then we begin to realize, wait a minute, many, many people who are religious bring those categories into religion. There's bad people, right? It's common sense. There's bad people and good people. Bad people don't spend eternity with Jesus. Good people do spend eternity with Jesus. Isn't that common sense? And then what happens is you get to the end of the parable and you come to the shocking realization that the son who wasted money on prostitutes and liquor and rebelled is at the banquet. And the son who was dutiful and moralistic and obedient and proud is standing outside in the cold. And the audience goes, I need to rethink my categories. What is going on here? This is jarring. This is disturbing. This would have rattled their cages. The point, if I preached this sermon and no one in the church felt a little disturbed, I would have not represented Jesus well. Right? This is what the sermon, this is what the parable is supposed to do. Incredible. And you know what's even more shocking than that? Is the reason that he gives for why he refuses to come in. Will you look at your own Bible for a minute at verse 29? When I saw this this week, I, I, I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> I read the Bible so fast. The reason that he refuses to come in comes out of his own mouth. In verse 29, where he says, I never disobeyed any of your commands. Therefore, I refuse to come to your banquet. (sighs) Whoa. My friends, I want to throw out a question and I want you to think about this with me for just a second. Think about this. What does it actually mean to be spiritually lost? What does it mean to be lost spiritually? Is it simply rebellion and and horrible living and being immoral and wicked and awful? Is, Is that as simplistic as it is, because this parable is saying, no, 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 you need to push a little bit deeper. And here's what I think the parable is saying. The sin that is at the root of all sin, go all the way to the very root of the tree. The sin that is at the very root is, I can say it in one word, control. I want control. I want to be God. 
I don't want God to be God. I want to be God. I want control. I'm on the throne of my life. And what's crazy is that when you look at the two brothers, they're both the same in that regard. They both, think about this. It's so amazing. Neither of these brothers wanted a relationship with their father. All they wanted was his stuff. Isn't that interesting? The first brother just asked for it early and then he ran off and wasted it. The second brother, he was dutiful and he was a rule keeper. But why? Because he wanted his father's stuff. He didn't want a relationship with his father. He certainly didn't want his father to have authority over his life. Astounding. Friends, there are two ways to be lost. Amazing. Amazing. I'll be honest with you. In my life, I've looked down on the older brother. (laughs) Like, ah, and then... In moments of pure honesty, I realize I'm a lot more elder brotherish than I'd like to admit. I'm a church kid, okay? <laughs> I'm, a ch- I'm, I'm much more elder brotherish. I think if we were honest, we would, we would say, maybe we go back and forth. Some of us have a younger brother story. Awesome. And then you realize later on in your Christian life, I'm starting to act like an older brother here, <laughs> Right? And I've seen that in my own life. And I thought, what are the signs, you know? So I thought of a couple signs. I'll put these up. A couple, just really quick. A couple signs that you might have what I want to call EBD, okay? Elder brother syndrome, okay? This is technical. This is a diagnosis, all right? Get help. But anyway, no, just honestly, take a minute. Think about this. Do you ever get angry when God doesn't give what you want? The elder brother was angry, Why? In his head, he had done worldly calculus. And the calculus was, I live a good life. Therefore, I get a good life. That's elder brotherish thinking. It turns my relationship with God into a contract where I do all these things and then you you bless me. That's how it goes, right? Or, Or do you ever, do you regularly compare yourself to others? Look, 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 at, look at other people around you and compare and look down on them. It was interesting when the elder brother spoke to his father. He said, you notice he didn't say my brother. He said, this son of yours. Did you notice that? <laughs> this son of yours. Look what he did. <laughs> and the older brother's looking down on him and, and, and then also getting some of his self-esteem from that comparison. And then third, and this is just, you know, sometimes if you find your relationship with Jesus is more about duty than devotion, there's, you think, there's no more joy. I'm, I'm doing this, this is duty, duty. Not to say that there aren't times where you just obey and you serve and you follow, but if your whole Christian life is just duty, that could be a sign. And Jesus, he's sitting there, imagine, he's sitting there in the room and he's looking at, at, at the Pharisees in the room and he's saying, I'm, I love you so much. I don't want you to stay in this place. Incredible. But it is disruptive. So that's, that's the first sort of disruptive observation. Here's another one. This is interesting. You might want to write this down. Repentance is often easier for prodigals 
than it is for elder brothers. Isn't that interesting? It's often easier. Oh, but wait, make no mistake. They both need to repent in this story. Both of them do. It's just that the younger, the repentance is more obvious. It comes more easy. The um, part of the makes the parable so beautiful is we get this beautiful picture of repentance, okay? And I, I reject, I've heard people say, oh man, I, I don't know why we have to talk about repentance. It's such a strong, ugly thing. Wait a minute. Repentance is so beautiful, folks. Repentance is, it's one of the actual gifts of the Christian faith. I'm gonna convince you in just a moment how beautiful and how it should be an ongoing practice in our lives. And we get this beautiful picture of the younger brother, but the point is that by the time we move from the younger brother to the older brother, we're realizing they both need this experience. It's just that in the parable, only one of them has it. And it's this classic picture of like pure gospel, like true repentance. You say, wait a minute, is there... Are you saying that there's like a, a false kind of repentance? There actually is. There's, there's a, a form of repentance that's a show. And then there's a kind of repentance that's this deep, powerful, gut level, heart level. It changes you from the inside out. And the younger brother experiences it. Amazing. And the very first thing I want you to notice, look at your Bible to verse 17. This is I just my favorite phrase in the whole thing. See what it says? He came to himself. Or, or it could be translated in the Greek. He came to his senses. It's this beautiful idea of someone, almost like someone waking up from a trance. Or waking up from slumber. Have you ever been daydreaming and then suddenly you realize, oh, oh my gosh, I was, you know, I was daydreaming. This is what this is. This moment where you go, wait a minute, what was I thinking? What was I, where, where was I? And the brother has that, and I love it. It, it says, the, in, the, in the Greek, it literally says, he, he came back to himself. I think what's happening here is we're supposed to imagine that a person can have a, a temporary time in their life where they, they live in two places, Think about this for just a minute. There's like my real self where I actually am spiritually before God. That's the reality. And then there's this imagined self that I can have where I can, it's almost like sin can lure me to sleep and tell me everything's good. Everything's amazing. My life is rich and full. I'm eating filet mignon when the guy is actually eating slop from the, the pig trough. Right? He's eating pods. Of, of, of slop, but he's telling himself, I'm living high on the hog. Okay, and what happens? What happens? Suddenly, boom, he wakes up, whoop, and he comes back to reality. Whoa. <laughs> he comes to himself. And let me tell you something. That is the single greatest thing that could ever happen to a person. You actually, you wake up to your reality. What, what, where was I? God, where was I? What was I thinking? How did I 
convince myself that was good or right or, or what you had for my life. He, he came to himself. Amazing. And then immediately he decided to return to his father. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 18. Immediately he says, I will arise. I'll go to my father. I love that. It's this idea of repentance being an immediate turn. You change, you turn around and you return. And, it, and, and think about this. He didn't say, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to start being more responsible. <laughs> I'm going to manage my money better. I'm going to pull up myself up by my bootstraps. I'm turning over a new leaf. No, no, no. This is not repentance. Repentance is, I am going to flee back to God in desperation. So sweet. And he does. And I love it. He comes to his father and there's this beautiful tent. It's like this humble God. He says, Father, I am completely wrong. (laughs) He doesn't justify what he's done. He doesn't explain it away. He doesn't say, you know, if you had been nicer to me, if my older brother had not, you know, he just says, this was me. And not only that, notice what he says at the very end. He says, this Total, he throws himself at the mercy of his father. He says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. My friends, that's repentance. I'm not even worthy, God, to be called your son. Amazing. And what happens is it sets up this massive contrast because the older brother stands outside the banquet and he says, I am worthy to be called your son. Whoa. What a difference. It's sometimes easier for a prodigal to get there. Oh, but it's the elder brother who has a harder time seeing the reality of his spiritual condition. Folks, I was raised in the church. I know this. I grew up in a beautiful church, a lot like River West. I never remember anyone describing repentance in the church that I grew up in. It was almost like people just assumed church kids don't don't need to repent. They don't need to even have a category for that, you know? They're, They're church kids, right? But what wait a minute, what a mistake are we making? I was, you know, I grew up in this church and I was a really good kid. So like rebellion for me, okay, was sneaking into the church kitchen after service and pounding the leftover communion bread. Okay, that was like sin for a church kid. We had this sweet lady in our church and she would bake homemade communion bread and she would glaze it with butter and sugar. And it was like delicious, all right? And I was so spiritual. I was like, I need more of Jesus after the service. And I would just get in there and we would get caught. No one ever taught me about repentance. I, 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 had, to, I had to grow up and start to live life in the world to realize I am way more elder brotherish than I'd like to admit. And I need to repent of controlling God leveraging God. Amazing. Amazing. I'll tell you one more thing about repentance at the end, but we got to finish. We got to finish. Okay, one last disturbing observation. It's actually beautiful. This is disturbing in a beautiful way. 
They're all beautiful. This one's really beautiful. The grace that this parable shows us is not just abundant, okay? The word abundant does not even come close to describing it. It is the grace that we see in this parable from the Father is downright scandalous. It's wasteful. It makes no sense. And I'm actually talking about the grace that he shows to the older brother, not the younger brother. Now, the grace is all over the parable, okay? So I'm going to go really fast because you've heard this before, but you see grace right from the beginning. This is grace. grace. The, the father is just gracious. The second that younger son says, I wish you were dead. Can I have your stuff? The father could have said, you are dead to me. Get out of my, he could have, he could have struck his son and said, I never want to see you again. But he says, I'm sure with a broken heart. Okay. And he allows his prodigal to walk away in mercy. And then as the son returns, of course, what do we see? Look at verse 20. These words piled up. This powerful moment of grace. There's the father. He's sitting in the front of his house and he sees his son in a distance. And then you see the words being piled up. The father saw him. The father felt compassion. He ran, which you would never do. He, he had to lift his robes to run. He embraced him. He kissed him. Right in the middle of it is that word compassion. It's one of the best words in the Bible. It's the word splanknitsomai. Okay. And it sound, it's describing what it, what it sounds like. It's, the, it's a word that describes your, literally your guts just being turned inside out. Just that feeling of, oh, but it's, it's compassion. And God says, I'm going to choose one word to describe how I feel towards my lost kids. It's like my gut's getting turned inside out. <laughs> Amazing. And the order matters. The chronology the father does not wait for a confession. He doesn't wait. Is he going to be, is he going to be, is he going to fall on his knee? Is he going to really be honest about what he did? He, folks, the father is off the porch before the son even sees him. Incredible. So the grace is not triggered by the confession. <laughs> Amazing. The grace had been there before any confession ever left this kid's mouth. And even when the son tries to repent, the father, he gets the, he's rehearsed his speech. Oh, father, I've sinned against heaven. And the dad's like, stop talking. Go get the robe. The robe, it would have been his robe. It would have been his ring. This would have been like, you are immediately restored to full sonship. I don't even need to hear what you have to say. You're, you're restored. What? Let's have a feast. Amazing. I could go on and on and on, but I won't because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that more grace is shown to the next son. So listen, I heard people say when I read commentaries, it's interesting in the first 
parable, the shepherd goes on an all-out search. In the second parable, the woman goes on an all-out search. But in the third parable, there's no search. And I was really surprised that people said that because there is an all-out search in this parable. The father left his banquet. He did not have to do this. He could have sent a, a steward or, a, or a someone, and if they had gone out and said, you better get your rear into this banquet right now, the older son would have come. But that's not how it happened. The father goes on an all-out search for his lost one half of his lost sons. He goes on a search. It's this beautiful picture of the grace of God. And I, I love it. I'll be honest with you. I love it. You know why I love it, River West? Because I'm the elder brother. And God searched for me. And I know you would say God searched for you as well. Amen? Amen? I'm going to close the sermon with one final observation about repentance. There's one thing I did not draw your attention to, and it's, but it's by far the most important moment in the repentance. And it's the moment I, I want to leave you with because it's, if we don't talk about this moment, everything else we've talked about will have no impact in your life. So I'm going to draw your attention now back to your Bible We look very closely at verse 20. Here is the last critical step in the repentance. He got up and he went to his father. He actually did something. Now in verse 17, think about this. In verse 17, he had decided that he was going to do this. And that's important. I once heard a really wise person share a riddle. And the riddle goes like this. There are two frogs sitting on a lily pad. And one of them decides to jump off. How many frogs are left? And if you say one, you're wrong because... There's still two because deciding to jump off is not the same thing as actually jumping off. That was Kermit the Frog, by the way. But anyway, (laughs) okay, here's the point. Now, wait a minute. Here's the point. Deciding to get up and flee back to the father, whether you are an elder brother or a younger brother, is just not the same as actually doing it which is precisely what we've come to do today, of course. Amen? Amen. And so what we'll do is we'll worship today. We'll end our service with some time for you to pray and reflect. In fact, I'm going to invite the worship team to come and I'll invite you to take a posture of prayer now and we'll respond. As you're bowing your heads in prayer, you're probably thinking about a lot of things, which is, Good, that's what the word does to us. But what I'd like to 
encourage you to do in this moment of prayer is just begin to ask the question, Lord, what, what did you invite me here today to hear? What did I need? You know, and perhaps there are younger, younger sons here. Maybe you are in that place. You're in outright rebellion against God and you, you know it and, and you've come to yourself. You've come back to your senses. In these moments of quiet and as we begin to worship, there's this beautiful, gracious invitation. Arise. You don't even have to stand up from your seat. This is a prayer. This is a heart moment. This is a falling on your knees at the feet of Jesus to say, I've sinned against heaven, against God. I confess. Return to your Father. Or maybe you have some elder brother tendencies, and you know, and God's entreating you, and he's come out, he's gone on a search to, 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 to reach you and say, leave that behind, leave that behind, and enter my banquet. And so, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for beauty and truth and wisdom, and thank you for disturbing us. In the name of Jesus, we thank you for it, Lord. All God's people said, amen.